Hey, good evening. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Lacey Johnson podcast. Uh, before we get started, let's get some maintenance type of things, housekeeping out of the way. Make sure you go out and like this video, subscribe to my YouTube channel, uh, click the bell for notification when I drop uh, new content. I have an online sto store at LaceyJohnson.com. Uh, and uh, if you just want to donate to the podcast, you can do that via my website. And just as important, uh, or even more important, uh, I like to hear your comments. Uh, I welcome people who have different points of views and disagree. I welcome people who can back those uh, different points of view up with facts and data and things that can be verified, but you don't even have to do that. So just uh, let's have some interaction here. Uh, first, uh, there's some great weather in Minnesota. Uh, and I can't believe it. I was telling someone you've heard me say before, uh, I remember days in Minnesota when it was minus 80 below wind chill and to have a February day like this where it's sunny and in the 40s and 50s is really amazing. I have to give props to my uh, studio guy here, Mr. Studio Matt Washington, who's always helping. And today I have a special guest in the studio, even though she would not appear on camera. She let me know that I got my wife here uh, also with me. Uh, I think you found out last week that we celebrated our fifth, seventh wedding anniversary. And we're going to get into some things about family and marriage and raising our children here today. But I think I'm going to start, because a lot of times I never script these things. I think I'm going to start with the conversation I was having with uh, one of my sons yesterday. And keeping in mind, he's in his early, mid-30s. I'm not going to tell his exact age. And uh, we were just talking about some of the uh, incident with the uh, law enforcement that uh, young black men and black men, black people in general have. And what I came away with is that no matter what I said or what data I produced, in his mind, it all boiled down to race. And so we're going to tackle that a little bit here today. Uh, but, you know, this whole uh, Black History Month, uh, I've attempted to uh, expose you to black voices, intellectuals and otherwise, who we never hardly hear from. And uh, the mainstream media just totally ignore them because they don't fit the narrative of black people being victims and racism is our problem and things like that. And most of you probably have guessed by now that I'm not into all the racism stuff and victimizing stuff. I just, I've just never looked at life like that. And so we're going to deal with that. So now, having said that, uh, you know, having studied a lot of stuff over the years, uh, I realized that this folks focus on racism is just a natural part of human evolution. And one of the people I'm going to have address that issue shortly before we get really get started is Neil deGrasse Tyson, probably deGrasse. Uh, that's an accente goo on me. E there at the end, I'm assuming. Uh, he's an astrophysicist, and what I like about him is that he can put, well, first of all, he talks a lot of just everyday subjects from an astrophysicist point of view. And secondly, he can simplify a lot of things and principles and laws that deal with astrophysics in the simplest terms, or what a normal man can understand it from Einstein, general theory of relativity to the basic. Uh, 
quantum physics principles dealing with things like entanglement that just, just blow your mind. And so he can put those things in very simple terms what most of us can understand. So the first thing I'm going to do here is bring to you so we can understand why we as people, as human beings, it's just our nature to focus on differences and race and things like that. But my thing is to bring awareness to that. And maybe once we're aware of that, we might start thinking and acting differently. I know that the more I became aware of things, uh, the more I thought differently and looked at things differently. Uh, and so let's go with uh, astrophysicist uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, as far as how it is, why it is, and how it's just natural that we focus on race and things. And I'm hoping by uh, at least becoming aware of this, we can start taking steps to overcome that. We have not left low Earth orbit in. Can you tell me why racism is stupid? If you go back, you know, 100,000 years, we lived in tribes. And these tribes, these nomadic tribes, these, you know, hunter gatherer tribes, you're people in your same family, people who looked like you, people who smelled like you, and that was your tribe. And there's another tribe over there. So now you want to protect your tribe. And there it is. We were like that for hundreds of thousands of years. We evolved that way. And then rapidly in recent centuries, where we can communicate with each other instantly, travel instantly, see everyone around the world basically instantly, we have no need for these tribal ways, yet we evolve that way. And so we have, let me call it tribal baggage. Mm -hmm. What is the tribal baggage? We go out of our way to find people that we say are in our group. Are you in or out? And if you're out in the limit, I might take up arms against you because you're not in my group. And the group could be anything. Can you tell me? So basically what he's saying is that, look, that was our a self-preservation type of instinct that we just evolved with and where we don't trust people outside of our group we tend to gravitate towards people in our group and what has happened if you fast forward to today is that it's hard to get out of that and probably even more important there are people out there very rich and powerful people out there who know that about about us and they leverage that to control our opinion. And as we go along further and evolve, uh, they leverage the fact that black people think black and they focus on race a lot and they know that. And so all the information we get when they're trying to get us to do something, they focus on that to uh, um, uh, get us to go along with whatever opinion uh, they are trying to instill in us. And I don't want to get into brain science and primal instinct and propaganda and things like that on this podcast. But there are people out there who are masters at this and who are very knowledgeable in this. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of these people are behind the quote unquote news we get. A lot of these people are uh, behind the public education curriculum. And so we're not, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But for now, I just want to focus on that uh, just the fact that we are forever conscious of race and there are people who manipulate that and make us aware of that and start thinking outside of that paradigm for a lack of better way uh, to put it. So this week, uh, once again, we're going to continue uh, our uh, effort to bring you voices, black voices you don't normally hear, and basically, let's face it, conservative voices.
You're not going to hear too many conservative people put in front of black folks because they're saying all the wrong things. They're not following the message and they're not making us feel like victims and they're not uh, demotivating our children with a lot of messages that intended to demotivate and keep you where you're at. And as long as you're where you're at, you're going to keep doing the things you're doing. So, uh, so we don't, the next thing, and I, I, I mentioned that uh, yesterday, uh, me and my son was having a talk about police killings. And now, what I would like for people to know, my audience to know before I get into this, uh, I raised two sons in what they considered the inner city, and a lot of people consider it the hood. And so I'm very familiar with uh, profiling and encounters with the police. I've had some myself personally, and I can talk about that too. But what I want to say up front, and I've said it before, uh, that talk that they, once again, the mainstream media is always talking about, uh, you should have with your uh, black children, especially your young black males. I had a talk with my two sons about uh, interfacing with the police and things like that. But it wasn't the talk that normally people talk about. Uh, the main things I stressed, and just out of love for my son, because I want to see him come home alive. I don't, I'm not concerned about all these political causes and, and whether the police, I'm concerned about the lives of my son. So what I told them, and keep in mind, we'll get into this later too. First, respect and obey the law. Secondly, if for some reason, you do get pulled over. Do not run from the police. Do not try to escape. Do not do anything. Basically, if there are some exceptions to this. Basically, be respectful and follow direction. Now, I'm going to digress here in a little bit. So, one, respect and obey the law. Two, don't uh, resist arrest. And three, and the third thing I tell them, make sure they see both of your hands at the same time. Now, I'm like this one. Uh, I try to understand it, and we're going to talk about some police killings that happen here locally. Uh, I, I, I'm the type to understand it's a tough job that they have. And uh, we're trying to make it so that they can do their jobs and we as citizens uh, can be respected. And what I tell you, my son, because my youngest son, he's a little bit more, shall I say, uh, resistant. He's more of a rebel. And I hope you don't mind me saying this. Uh, but I told him, look, let's fight it another day. The goal is to live and fight it another day in another way, rather than out on the street when you meet them. Uh, so this next clip is apropos. Uh, those of you across the country and across the world uh, probably heard of the recent uh, killings out in Burnsville, Minnesota. I know some people live out there, of course, uh, where they killed two law enforcement officers and one medic. Uh, who were called to a domestic violence uh, dispute. And so it, once again, it brought that issues in the news. Now, you know, just about every black that I know uh, is so sure that uh, these killings has mostly to do with race. And like I told you before, uh, I'm kind of a methodology type of person. You gather all the information and evidence and you analyze the issue, then you start developing the solutions behind that. I'm not one to jump to conclusion to find one thing and say that explains it because once again, 
uh, my math and scientific and engineering background tells me that's not the way you solve issues. But you got to really know what you're doing. Uh, so uh, everybody's convinced of that. Uh, once the, the issue with George Floyd happened, first thing I did within a day or so, I went out and saw, tried to find some data on police killings. And I went out to the city of Minneapolis website and told the story before I found out that between 2008, I think it was, and 2019, there was over 4 million encounters between the Minneapolis police and citizens of, uh, 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 of the Twin Cities. And out of that number, there was 11 killings and the majority of them was white. And so that's where I started at before I got too far off. And I'm seeing all this uh, uh, racist police, defund the police, which is basically a bunch of nonsense. But uh, I, I was hearing all this. And once again, I'm concerned about the lives of my sons and any, actually any citizen, innocent person being killed by the police, not just black people. And I'm particularly concerned about black people. And I turn to my wife when I hear everybody's so sure that it's racially uh, motivated. I, I turn to my wife and say, you know what? As long as we take that perspective on things, these black men are gonna keep getting killed. And, and I, I believe that because that's really not all to it. And so without further ado, uh, there was a brother at Harvard who actually studied police killings. And I'm gonna let you tell, let him tell you uh, what he did and how people reacted to it. And th keep thinking like when I uh, presented you the uh, information on our evolution as a species to think in terms of groups and race and things, keep that in mind as he's talking. So he, here's the young man, Mr. Roland Fryer, professor of economics at Harvard University who actually looked into this issue and gather data logic and statistics on it before he's decided what the answer is. So, Mr. Roland Fry. We collected millions of observations on uh, everyday use of force that wasn't lethal. We collected thousands of observations on lethal force. And, and it, it was in this moment, 2016, that I realized people lose their minds when they don't like the result. So what my paper showed, you'll see tomorrow, uh, some of you, uh, was that Yes, we saw some bias in the low-level uses of force every day pushing up against cars and things like that. People seem to like that result. But we didn't find any uh, uh, racial bias in police shootings. Now, that was really surprising to me because I expected to see it. The little-known fact is I had eight full-time RAs that it took to do this over nearly a year. When I found the surprising result, I hired eight fresh ones and redid it to make sure they came up with the same exact answer. And I thought it was robust. And I went to go give it. And my God, all hell broke loose. It was a 104-page, dense, academic economics paper with a 150-page appendix. Okay? It was posted for four minutes when I got my first email. This is full of shit doesn't make any sense. And I wrote back, how'd you read it that fast? That's amazing. You are a genius. And I had colleagues take me into to the side and say, don't publish this. You'll ruin your career. Mm. I said, what are you talking about? I said, what's wrong with it? Do you believe the first part? Yes. Do you believe the second part? 
Well, it's the issue is they just don't fit together. We like the first one, but you should publish the, the second one another time. I said, let me ask this. If the second part about the police shootings, this is a literal conversation. I said to them, if the second part uh, showed bias, do you think I would, should publish it then? And they said, yeah, then it would make sense. And I said, I guarantee you I'll publish it. We'll see. So a couple of things, you know, and then you can talk about things on different levels and different specific things about it. But people lose their minds when they don't like the results. And that's been my personal experience. And boy, you got to be prepared for it. When anything goes against what they've been believing all their lives or they want to believe all their lives, uh, you're gonna have a hard time, especially uh, dealing with race. And you know, the, 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 to me, the I, I don't want to use the word sad. The challenging, I say, it's challenging part for me. A lot of these people are educated people. I mean, his colleagues that telling him not to publish this. These are educated people, and they don't want it to get out in public. The truth, really, and that's the sad situation that we are at today. And it's not just when they're dealing with uh, issues dealing with black people, it's just about all kinds of issues. The truth gets you in trouble. And they're really basically saying, you're gonna lose your job if you publish this, uh, even though it's truthful and factual. And that's a sad state. And it's not conducive to solving these issues. And that's why I get out here and say what I gotta say and say disagree with it because really somebody got to stand up for the truth and facts and actually people's lives are at stake. As I say about this police killing issue, until we face the reality that is probably not, and this is what the study showed, a racial issue. There are other factors here. And until we take a less emotional, instinctual approach so a lot of issues facing the black community, we're not going to solve them. And let me just say, like this brother, it's rough, man, because everybody around you into black issues, man, and they will uh, give you a hard time, think you're crazy, think you're stupid, think you. And it's hard to stand up against the vast majority, but that's what I do, and I'm going to continue to do it. Uh, I got practice a little bit. I got a pretty. Uh, my family members, uh, we all much of know-it-alls and argumentative and stuff. And every once in a while, I would take a position that everybody disagreed with. And they would harp on me. But you know what? And I, I'm not saying this to brag, but most of the time, I was proven right. Even though everybody was against it, I stuck my ground. I'm going to stick my ground on, on some of these things. So uh, once again, his empirical study and once again, I hope you paid attention to the fact that he didn't, he's like, look, I'm surprised by these results. Let me hire a whole new team to go through this study and see what results they came come out with. And they came out with the same results. So for all of you out there who are sure that these police killing of black people are racially motivated, and you can keep thinking that. Uh, keep this brother and his study in mind 
And by the way, like I said, I've been suspicious of all this stuff all along. And, uh, I could never find any data to back up that premise that it was totally racially motivated. Uh, in fact, like I said, uh, most of the data that I originally saw said it wasn't. And But the, the challenge you have, I, I just remember, once again, I'm a data guy. Uh, I looked up numbers on police killings in the years that I looked at. And to be honest, I was surprised to see it. I saw that twice as many unarmed whites were killed by police each year than blacks. You would never know that by uh, listening to the news stories. By the way, the media is part of this. Uh, media is part of the scamming of the black mind. Uh, and the way they scam it is with the information they give us versus the information that they will hold. And that's one of the reasons I want to have some black conservative voices on here, because that's a lot of the information that they are sharing is being withheld from black people via the normal channels of communication, uh, via which is you know, TV, newspapers, et cetera, uh, in, in our schools and classrooms. Uh, that's why uh, my son, who has grown up in a family who don't get into all of that, has all of a sudden been indoctrinated to believe that if race is involved and black people are on the bad end, it got to be racism. And he can't ever understand that some of these things are just mathematical, uh, statistical coincidence or whatever, uh, random variations and things like that. So anyway, so that's one thing. But mainly I want to get to you. Oh, look, every life is precious and we need to start treating it that way. So I just want to get that out the way. And then we're going to segue into uh, some black conservative voices here, powerful men that, like I said, most of America has never heard of. Uh, Dr. Glenn Lowry, a professor at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, one of the Ivy League schools, and me and my wife and family are pretty familiar with uh, Brown University in Providence. Uh, you've heard a couple of times, that's one where my son did his graduate work at. Uh, and they tell me Brown is, Ooh, in the Ivy League, man, you're talking liberal, liberal leftist, whatever. <laughs> and all that shit, I think our country's in trouble. Uh, when I consider the fact that this is where we get a lot of our leaders from, is these Ivy League universities. And I've been on those campuses, man, and I'm really concerned uh, as far as what's going on on those campuses. And these are the future leaders of our country that's being indoctrinated the way they are. Uh, but so we got Dr. Glenn Lowry, uh, professor at Brown University. We got Bob Wilson, and we got Ian Rowe. And once again, these are uh, black conservatives. And I'm gonna let them speak for themselves. Now, to be honest with you, I try to pick little spots, uh, just little clips from this. But there's, there's so much good information in here. I'm gonna play a large part of this uninterrupted. Let me know what you think, and I'm gonna stop every once in a while and make some commentary. And then we may have to do a two part on this, but I do want to end uh, with uh, Mr. Thomas Sowell. Sowell. And he, as far as I'm concerned, is the grandfather of black conservatism. This, this brother is so uh, well read, knowledgeable and educated, and thoughtful. Uh, it's a shame that they don't let black people hear from him. 
And another thing I like about him, I think he's in his 90s. He's about 93, 94 years old. And he's he's an OG to me. He's one of the older voices. And then the three gentlemen that uh, we're going to listen to today, they're relative old. Uh, and a lot of the challenge for the black community is that they're, the media is, is ignoring elder blacks. They're ignoring uh, the black church. And they are focusing on uh, young, woke, liberal blacks. And as our thought leaders, and I brought you a clip uh, on that from Malcolm X, that's who they are putting in front of us as our leaders. And so as a result, me and my son talked about this yesterday. You, you hear things on TV like looting is a form of reparations. And I'm sorry, people, that's the silliest nonsense mess I've ever heard. But that's what they are putting in front of black people. And that's what we listen to and, and everything. And these gentlemen will get into it, too, because in a lot of ways, we've lost our spiritual way. Uh, we've lost our uh, appreciation and support of families. Uh, we've lost the value we placed on education. And they're going to talk about those three things just like I do. But uh, again, I talk about the fourth one as far as prosperity and building prosperity uh, through the capitalistic system. So they're going to start on that. Uh, I'm going to set it up. It's, it was at the Hoover Institute. And in fact, I've been to the Hoover Institute at the time when I was into uh, charter schools and educations and education of our black children. And that's one of the pet peeves of mine that we spent some time on. And one of these days, we'll devote a whole program to uh, education uh, of, of our black youth, because that's a serious, serious issue. And as long as I'm talking about it, I get on my soapbox briefly. I always have to say this. I do not want to hear about teaching our kids anything about a critical race theory until you teach them how to read and write and do arithmetic. And so it's all a shell game, a scam, a bait and switch. Uh, our public schools need to educate our children and give them skills that they can take to the market and get paid for uh, by not teaching them to read and write and do math and teach them about critical race theory. I keep repeating, you heard me say it a minute, they are educating our kids to grow up to be protesters. And I just have a, a hard problem with that. Somewhere in this uh, clip, uh, they talk about uh, inspirational an aspirational message to our black youth. And that's a serious pet peeve of mine. That's why I'm out here. Because when I sit and listen, whether it's media or in the living rooms of, of like I say, educated, uh, quote unquote, successful black people, uh, I do not hear inspiration. All I'm hearing, I'm listening to them as if I was a kid. You don't stand a chance. Structural racism, institutional racism, no matter what you do, you're black, you're not going to succeed. That's some of the messages that we're getting instead of inspirational and aspirational messages, which I got as a child. And you'll hear some of these older black gentlemen talking about their childhood because we're here today. Uh, we are looking at all things that's going on around us. And we realize a lot of things. We realize what has changed and what has not changed. And we're not making some of the connections somehow this modern generation is, is making. So I'm going to get you started. Shut up here. Uh, uh, next voice that you hear will be Dr. Glenn Lowry, but will be Bob Wilson and Eon Rowe being interviewed by a gentleman from the Hoover Institute.
from the title page of Nicole Hannah-Jones' essay introducing the 1619 Project, quote, our founding ideals of liberty and equality were false when they were written, close quote. The United States of America, a racist fraud. With us today, three African-American intellectuals who do not buy it. Glenn Lowry, Ian Rowe, Robert Woodson, on Uncommon Knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. We're shooting today from the Old Parkland Conference in Dallas, Texas. Glenn Lowry grew up in a rough neighborhood on the south side of Chicago and became a tenured professor of economics at Harvard at the age of 33. Dr. Lowry now holds a chair in social sciences and economics at Brown. He also hosts a weekly podcast on the Ricochet Network, The Glenn Show. Glenn Lowry holds degrees from Northwestern University and MIT. Ian Rowe grew up in New York and describes himself as, quote, a proud product of the New York City public school system, close quote. A fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a visiting fellow at the Woodson Center, we're coming to Woodson, Ian Rowe is the co-founder of Vertex Partnership Academies, a new group of high schools that opened in the Bronx this very year. He's the author of the new book, Agency, published this month. The book, and here I quote from Mr. Rowe's own material, seeks to inspire young people of all races to build strong families and become masters of their own destiny, close quote. Ian Rowe holds degrees from Cornell and Harvard. The founder of the Woodson Center, Robert Woodson, grew up in Philadelphia during the 40s and 50s, participated in the civil rights movement in the 60s, and has, since the 70s, emphasized neighborhood empowerment over government action in improving the lives of African Americans. Two years ago, he countered the New York Times 1619 Project by founding 1776 Unites. Wow. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having us. Good to be with you. All right, the first question takes a moment to set up, but I'll set it up and just toss it over to you. We're recording today, as I mentioned, at the uh, Parkland Conference in Dallas, a conference that is considering the state of African-American lives in America in light of a conference that took place 40, actually 42 years ago, it would have been 40 if COVID hadn't intervened, <laughs> and this conference had taken place on time, but the Fairmont Conference of 1980, which Bob Woodson attended. Thomas Sowell, our friend and hero, Thomas Sowell at that 1980 conference, quote, one of the problems in dealing with programs for blacks is that vast empires can be built on these programs. These programs definitely prevent poverty among bureaucrats, economists, statisticians, and others, close quote. So that sums up the spirit of the conference of four decades ago, not politics, but I thought I'd intercede briefly here. The issue that he's pointing out is that race and racism has become monetized. It's an industry. And it's kind of like it's evolved into DEI and a lot of other things. But once people start making money on something, you can almost guarantee that it's continuing to exist and more than likely it's going to grow. And, you know, uh, there's some black authors out there like Cornel West, and I think it's Michael Dyson, uh, and a lot of other people, they get paid to talk about race. And once that's monetized, it's hard to 
uh, get rid of it. So I just want to make that a little interjection there. And that's a lot of what's going on in our community right now. Economics replace dependence on government programs with education and work. Since that conference, good news, the proportion of African-Americans living in poverty has fallen from 30% in 1980, the year of that conference, to 19% today. But then there is this. Income. According to the Census Bureau, median white household income in the teen was $68,000 a year, and median black income was dollars a year. 40 years later, gap. Educational attainment. According to a 2019 study of the average school district, white students scored an average of 1.5 to 2 grade levels higher than black students. Again, after four decades, a gap. In these last four decades, the Cold War has ended. The American economy has more than doubled in size. A technological revolution has swept the world. And yet these gaps between white and black Americans just seem frozen. How come, Glenn? Well, they're not exactly frozen, although they are such as you described. We do have gaps. Uh, I think that we have to consider what the government can do through law and policy and what it cannot do. I think that we have largely accomplished what the government can do in terms of creating a level playing field of opportunity between blacks and others. Equality before the law. Correct. Non-discrimination, voting rights, open, equal access. But there are things the government cannot do. The government cannot make families stay together. The government cannot raise children. Um, it can't influence a culture that may encourage behaviors that are counterproductive. Uh, it can't break down old habits. So um, in a way, the ball is in our court now. I speak of African-Americans. The society is open and fair and free to a very great extent. Otherwise, people wouldn't be voting with their feet in the millions and tens of millions to try to come here. But we still, African-Americans, have our work cut out for ourselves, educating our children and taking care of our own business. That, anyway, is the argument that I'd be inclined to make 42 years after Thomas Sowell and others gathered here, gathered at Fairmont, to discuss these issues. Bob, you grew up in a time segregation. You grew up in Jim Crow. I really did, in a low-income a black neighborhood in Philadelphia. And so, so are, are you going to buy Glenn's yes. argument? Let that me tell you. Discrimination is now over. The question is, how did we thrive in the presence right. of segregation? Yes. And the, and the greatest declines are occurring during the time of desegregation. I grew up in, in 1937. I was during the middle of the Depression. I never heard a gun fired in my life from the time I was there through high school. You were born in 37. Born in 1937. Never heard a gun fired at all. 98% um, of all the households had a man and a woman raising children. I never heard of an elderly person being mugged in my neighborhood. I never heard of a child being shot in their crib. All of these occurred that, that, that between 1930 and 1940, 
when racism was enshrined in law, Black America had the highest marriage rate of any group in society, and elderly people could walk safely there. So, and Thomas Sowell pointed out that the largest decline in poverty in the Black community occurred between 1945, when uh, it, it reduced from 82% down to 40, and then uh, even further. And all of this came to a halt in the 60s with the war on poverty. That's when uh, we saw a dramatic change in, in the composition of families, also uh, income, uh, the reduction in poverty. So, so I, I, I know that, that what 50 years of post-slavery, um, 50, year, 50 years after, 100 years after slavery um, uh, produced, it didn't, it didn't destroy our families. But the last 50 years, you've seen rapid declines, and we document why that happens. Ian? So again, the civil rights movement gives us equality before the law, correct? Yeah. We grant that. And then with roughly the same time in the 60s, we get the great society and a vast expansion of the welfare state, and much of that is directed toward African-Americans. And Bob Woodson, and I am not about to argue with the grand old man here, Bob Woodson. Bob Woodson says that Glenn says equality before the law, of course, is good and has been substantially achieved. Is that fair? Yeah. And Bob Woodson says all of this, no matter how high-minded, no matter how well-intentioned, this vast apparatus of welfare has left us African-Americans with shattered families Crime, crime rates we didn't have. How do you explain all of this? Well, I think it's first important to establish that not all African American families are living in poverty, of course, or shattered. No, it's it's an important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The narrative often seems to be when we come to this subject, we immediately move to that segment of the black community that has been steeped in pathology in some way, and yet since the 60s and, and prior, black doctors, lawyers, accountants, professionals. So and there's the president a, of the United States. And the president and even the vice president. Right. Uh, so we have to be as obsessed with the success of the black community to understand what are the factors that have driven that level of success as we are seemingly as obsessed with that segment of the black community that has not been successful. And you started off your comments by talking about these persistent gaps. Gaps, yes, yes. And it's, it's important to talk about those because there are, and I, as someone who has run schools in the heart of the South Bronx, I'm very well aware of these, these persistent gaps between black students and particularly white students. But it's important to note that in the entire history of the National Assessment for Educational Progress, which is the nation's report card, it's still the case that in 2019, prior to the pandemic, only 37% of all American kids Including are reading at grade level. And even white kids have never been higher than about 44% of white kids reading at grade level. So what's interesting about that, it's unlikely that systemic racism is the reason that white kids are not reading at grade level. So the question is, what are the factors beyond race 
that are driving low performance outcomes for kids of all races. And to the degree that we can start to distinguish this idea that discrimination, uh, disparity must equal discrimination, we need to break that because that monocausal type of thinking uh, sh uh, shrouds all of these other factors that are so important in the black and other communities, strong families, access to school choice, high expectations in curriculum. These are the things that I think if we were to, in a sense, not to ignore the impact of racism, but put it in its proper context to really ask the question, to what extent does racism really explain these disparities given some of the achievements of, of equality under the law and the levels of success that do exist within the black community and have hard, honest conversations about how these other factors are really driving these disparities. Okay, let, let's go to the I'm going to see briefly here a couple of things to point out. First of all, if you pay attention, a lot of it, they are talking about what we need to do. In fact, uh, I think uh, Dr. Lowry, that's exclusive what he's talking about, what we need to do. And once again, uh, from personal experience, it's not a popular uh, position to take what we need to do. Uh, you'll get along a lot better. I get along a lot better with my friends and in the black community uh, if I talk about racism and what white people need to do and how the world needs to change and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so uh, pay attention to that. Uh, there was a message about overcoming victimhood. And I've said it before, I have never felt like a victim in my life. But uh, if you remember, I've never concerned myself with what other people think of me or black people or anything else. I've never concerned myself with white supremacy and all that stuff. I just never have time for that. Uh, people are free to think whatever they want for whatever reason. And it's up to me uh, to do what I got to do. And if I do what I got to do, I'm going to prove them wrong with what they're doing. Uh, the second thing is this 1619 project that they mentioned up front. This is something started by the New York Times. And one of these days, I'm going to do a little feature on the New York Times. I call them the New York slimes uh, when it comes to stuff. And uh, you're going to have to excuse my language here. I'm warning you up front. I think uh, their motto is all the news fit to print. And I changed that once again, forgive me. All the news that shit to print is, is the motto I use for the New York Times, especially when it comes to reporting on social issues, political issues, world issues. It's just a bunch of crap and garbage as far as I'm concerned. I don't, they should be ashamed to call themselves journalists as far as I'm concerned. It's a propaganda rag. But I'm getting in trouble for that. But the New York Times is it's nothing but a propaganda rag and I can see through what they're doing. Uh, the other thing uh, they're talking about is family and neighborhoods versus the government. And one of the sad things, and I, I'm hoping that we can do some things to prevent this, uh, we are on a trend now where the government is replacing the family. Now, there are some people out there who this is their goal to have the government replace the family. Because guess what? If the government replaced the family, now you're dependent on the government, which means it's the same thing as dependent on politicians who are bought and sold, basically by the money of powerful people. So just the government thing, uh, if you think about it, 
it's kind of sad. A lot of it is because the black men, we just aren't doing what we're supposed to do. Uh, the government is providing our income, providing our food, providing our housing. And and, and please give, give me comments on this. I'm throwing down a challenge to all the black men out there. Let's stop putting the government in a position where they're the provider of our for our children and our families. Let's take hold and do that ourselves. And let's face it, it's not easy because uh, there's a lot of things that outside the it's going to be tough to put the genie back in the bottle with a lot of things that's going on now. So I just wanted to point that out. Uh, the constant talking about we and also pay attention. It's not like these gentlemen were born with silver spoons in their mouths. They had to deal with the same type of racism that's overcome the same type of thing. And I've said it before, I have what they call the post of uh, parts of life. And it just have to do with your uh, perspective on life. That's the P. Your attitude towards what happens, uh, towards what's going on in life. Uh, your reactions to what happens to you. Uh, most of life is, is your reaction. It's not what's, hap what's happening to you. It's how you react to things that's important. And then secondly, I think you have just have to have a lot of tenacity in life. And finally, and probably the most important part as far as I'm concerned, is spirituality. So perspective, attitude, uh, reaction, tenacity, and spirituality. And so a lot of them are talking about how they overcome it with those type of items. So let's get back to them. Uh, there's so many good things saying here. Uh, I hate to cut them off. We might have to do a two-part and welcome your feedback on it. Project. Because one aspect of understanding the black experience in America is understanding America, right? New York Times editor Jake Silverstein introducing the 1619 Project, he wrote an essay that introduced it. Quote, 1776 is the year of our nation's birth, but this fact, which is taught in our schools and celebrated every 4th of July, is wrong. And the country's true birth date was in 1619, the year the first slaves reached North America, close quote. So the New York Times knows what the problem is. <laughs> the, country, the country was racist from the get-go. Okay, now here's a tweet from Brother Glenn over here. After the 1619 Project won a Pulitzer Prize. Lowry has the effrontery to post this tweet. A group of scholars, myself included, are calling on the Pulitzer board to revoke that prize. Close quote. You better explain yourself. The New York Times? Come on. Well, it was a Pulitzer Prize for a piece of journalism that was flawed. This had to do with the essay that Hannah Jones penned to open the magazine special issue, in which she alleged that uh, the uh, generation of founding uh, Americans who fought the Revolutionary War against Britain did so in order to preserve slavery or because they felt that Britain was a threat to the preservation of slavery in the colonies. And distinguished historians have come forward to say that that is nice. simply false. So I thought uh, and think that uh, veracity and accuracy of historical arguments should be at least a necessary precondition for the awarding of a Pulitzer Prize. But I, I want to say something else, if I may, please, which is that the reason that uh, something like the 1619 Project could have such cachet as it does have is because of the disparities 
the, the disparities are the underlying uh, fuel to the political bonfire that we saw after the killing of George Floyd in 2020. The disparities don't address the problems that are affecting all Americans. I agree with Ian about that, but they are nevertheless a very important reality and that has, has political consequences. The thing that, and, 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 and I think this is at the heart of the issue, the disparities have to be addressed. The question is, what's the theory upon which, why those disparities? Indeed. In 1619 Project, they argue that the United States has anti-black racism in the very DNA of the country. So think about that. So for them, there is no other explanation. All of these things in terms of family structure, access to great schools, high expectations, none of that matters relative to this force. Let me quote you, Ian. This is a piece you wrote about the 1619 Project. As educators, and again, you run uh, charter schools in the Bronx. As educators, we must reject the tired ideas of the 1619 Project and I, I love this. We do our scholars no favors by treating them as victims. Oh. Oh. In my entire 10 years of running schools, I never had a single parent ask me to make sure in the curriculum we teach our kids that they're just going to be victims of this white power structure, abandoning their agency. Robert Woodson on the 1619 Project. As the Woodson Center scholar Delano Squires has noted, we are now beset, listen to this. It's not often I wish I'd written something myself, but this is, this is really good. We are now beset by white liberals who are looking for absolution from sins they didn't commit, and black liberals who are looking to be affirmed for injustices they didn't suffer. Bob, explain yourself. I mean, it's all of this, this, this false narrative driven by elites on both sides who are victim signaling. And also, I think, publishing a false narrative that is untrue. The assumption is that a lot of the challenges facing a lot of low-income communities of out-of-wedlock birth and, and what have you is a direct, uh, directly attributed to the legacy of slavery and discrimination. And so what we did... And that cannot be true because you knew an African-American community when you were a kid that didn't suffer from any of that. No, and we all could read, you know. But we also, in our essays, did not want to just uh, offer a, a debate. We wanted to offer a counter-narrative that was inspirational and aspirational. We tell examples of, of in 1943, when uh, Elmer Roosevelt, there were no black naval officers. And so Elmer Roosevelt persuaded her husband to force the Navy to train them. So they trained 16 college-educated men. The Navy said, we're going to give them in eight weeks what we give white cadets in 16 weeks. So when these men found out about it, they covered the, uh, uh, the windows in their barracks and stayed up all night and studied. And when they were tested, they scored in the 90th percentile. They said, oh, they cheated. So they took them individually. They scored in the 93rd percentile. And eventually they were commissioned. But those test scores are still the highest ever uh, obtained in that school. And there are other examples from the past where under horrendous circumstances, we outperformed, uh, we performed in the presence of these obstacles. And so these are very important lessons for people because people are motivated to change and improve when they see victories that are possible, 
not constantly reminding them of injuries to be avoided. Right? So, Glenn, if? A couple of things. Once again, the role of the New York spread in falsehoods that they know are false. In fact, I might have been a little strong in my criticism, but I read the New York Times, and after a while, you have to know things for yourself. And my, one of my favorite saying of people can convince you to believe anything if you don't know any better. And from years of reading the New York Times, I just noticed they were publishing a lot of things that they knew were, was not, were not true. And once again, after I constantly explain, you see a pattern happening. And so basically this 1619 project that they started up and want black people to believe that, that America is has racism in his DNA and will never change. Can you imagine what type of message is sent to our black youth? And it's basically in a lot of ways, you might as well not try. And I like the fact that uh, especially uh, Mr. Woodson was telling the story of the black naval officers that they gave eight weeks of study versus 16, I think it was, or four versus eight. And they still went and passed the test and they didn't believe it and they get to test them a second time. The bottom line, and I'll get back to the here, is that, you know, and, and keeping in mind, I was raised in another generation, but my dad taught me that men shouldn't be whining and complaining about how unfair things are. And one of the sad uh, experiences that I'm having with a lot of black men is that they sound just like black women whining and complaining. And uh, I don't really uh, expect that of me. And uh, and I, look, I told you my wife <laughs> is she a woman today? I think she looked up at, <laughs> at that comment. But let me know what you think. Uh, let's get back to the interview. And I'll, in the meantime, I try to get myself out of trouble with some of my audience and my wife here, and women out there. If we could wave a magic wand and give African-Americans, all Americans for that matter, but we're talking about African-Americans because we've got these disparities. Some large percentage of kids raised to the age of 18 in a home with both parents present instead of a tiny percentage. Make it 60, 70 percent. There are going to be divorces, families have to find. Let's get it over half. Give them decent schools. Uh, really, three things as far as I can tell. I'm putting this to you, I'm not announcing it, I'm putting it to you for your correction and amendment. But, and then the third, we let them grow up in neighborhoods that are safe. If we do those three, those three things, now that there is fundamental equality before the law, we could just sit back and let it rip, couldn't we? From your mouth to God's ears. Indeed we could. Um, I mean, you know, there's no reason to expect that in an ideal society, every group is going to come out in equal wealth holdings and equal professional achievement and so on. Disparities are not discrimination. Disparities are not even necessarily problematic, but the magnitude of the difference at the low end of the socioeconomic spectrum of experience for African-Americans and others is deeply troubling. And I think the three things that you named, safety and security in your property and person a place where your children can realize their full human potential through uh, assiduous attention to their development and a home environment that is relatively
relatively stable uh, that has 48 hours a day of parental supervision time and not 24 hours a day that has, if necessary, two salaries to put bread on the table and keep a roof over their heads and not one that models for one's children what healthy family life looks like that has norms and expectations about behavior that are passed on from parents to children. Sure, we'd be okay. We'd be okay. So here I've got a lecture that you delivered in 2012. Raising the issues of morality and values is vitally important. The family and church, you two listen to this too because I'm going to come to you in a moment. The family and church are the natural sources of moral teaching. Indeed, the only sources, close quote. Okay, so here's, here's the problem. If, if we all are in agreement that we know actually, if we can give African-American kids today the kind of neighborhood in which Bob grew up some years ago, I won't name the years, Bob, but some years ago. <laughs> I'm proud of it. <laughs> but how do you do it? How do you put the family back together? For that matter, how, what, what, what can we do to reconstruct the African-American church? I mean, my God, I'm, I'm a white guy, and I was, grew up on hymns that were in those days called Negro spirituals. And that was, and I was, I was told, and growing up in, in upstate New York in a white community, I was told of the importance of the black church and how African Americans endured slavery because of their deep spiritual. All of this is true, but how do you, how do you put it back together? You say, what can we do? And my answer is, who are we? The collective we of the United States of America, through its institutions, its government, and its policies, can do relatively little. There's some fiddling around the margin. There's a marriage tax. You might not want to have policy that makes it economically rational for people to avoid marriage and right. so on. Right. There's the, when the state speaks, what does it say, kind of messaging where through public programming of one sort or another, you can affirm certain values, very thin values, not something that violates the sectarian differences between us in terms of faith, but at its base in terms of uh, the conveying of norms and the teaching of a way of life. That's not something that the large we can do. That's something that the communal we, it seems to me, has to do. You say, how can we restore our churches? Well, we can't restore our churches, but we can. Bob? I guess I'm a radical pragmatist. That's my political philosophy. But I also know that there's great uh, inventiveness in indigenous institutions. There are examples of grassroots leaders uh, in, in America, like in Kimmy Gray, a, a public housing a leader in, in Washington in the 80s, uh, was abandoned by her husband at age 23 with five children in welfare. She got off welfare, sent all five kids to college, and then through her leadership, organized the residents to take charge of their community and in 12 years sent 600 kids off to college, eliminating teen pregnancy in that community. And, 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 and so there have been other islands of excellence where people, grassroots leaders, have, have uh, applied old values to a new vision and a new reality and provided an alternative to that, that structure that has produced uh, the transformation 
of these communities. We need to look at what are these islands of excellence, uh, uh, these social entrepreneurs. We need to look at the capacity of people to regenerate their themselves and their communities. There are all kinds of examples that we have found at the Woodson Center around the nation where we, if we say that 70% of the families are raising children with dysfunctional, it means 30% are not. How many studies have gone into the homes of the 30% to find out how are people achieving against the odds? And what is it that we can do to expand and build on what the 30% so they can expand it to the 70%? This just takes some imagination, but you have to believe that development is possible uh, in order for you to, to invest in it. And education, it's gotta be education, right, for you? Well, what's interesting is that more success in education actually relies very heavily on more success in strong families and strong faith commitments. And when you see that, how is that? How is that the case? So when you ask the question, how do we revitalize, particularly around faith? One of the things is to realize there are pockets, as, as Bob is mentioning, that there are these islands of excellence where there are already strong faith communities embracing schools. So in the heart of the South Bronx, where I run, we have relationships with churches, where we have mentoring relationships, reading tutors, who are adopting schools and building the connection, which is first just based on reading and improving math outcomes, but also starts to become a pathway that young people start to see value in developing a faith commitment within their own lives. To Glenn's point, there is no top-down, suddenly we're just going to have a much broader uh, engagement in faith. However, we should recognize the power of what already exists and create bonds between the institutions that right now are so fractured. So may I, may I ask, it occurs to me, the three of you are tremendously accomplished, but you're also educated. Undergrad MIT is where you got your doctorate, as I recall, uh -huh. and your undergrad degree is Northwestern. University. Northwestern and MIT, Cheney and Penn, and Cornell and Harvard. So, how did the three of you do it? If could, if if this isn't too personal, if you go back to your family, you were encouraged by your families. You got excellent education when you were a little kid. How did it happen for the three of you? Let's start with you, Bob. Well, first of all, my, my death grade education and five kids to raise. <clears throat> and so there was no encouragement on that. She, so was, I, she was just trying to hold on. She was just trying to hold on. And my, my friends were a year older than me. And so they graduated. So I dropped out of high school and went into the military, the Air Force, and entered the space program. And they saw, and I got trained. And I finished uh, my GED in the service and went to University of Miami when I couldn't walk on the campus because of segregation, so but they had extension courses on the base. But I decided when I, I looked at how bad blacks are being treated in the South, and I said, their education is no better than mine. If I wanted respect, I have to. So from that day on, I worked hard, graduated, got my GED, came out, and went to, uh, blessed to go to Cheney, had a loving professor who took these 13 veterans under his wing. We went all we, we went 12 hours uh, a semester and then we went all summer so we could finish on time. And so it was a grind for me um, because 
I had not read a book cover to cover until I went to college. And so it meant I had to go into the library to make up background reading. But then I was able to go, thank God they didn't have affirmative action, Glenn, and they <laughs> sent me right to University of Penn. But I went to a black college who took me in, and then I, that prepared me to compete at Penn, and I did very well at the graduate school. So you, for you, it was... I was the first person in my family to finish college. You spotted it as the way out. Right. Of being disrespected, that, that, that I saw blacks were being mistreated in the South. I saw this. I didn't want to be treated like that, but I knew that I had to prepare myself if I didn't want to be treated like that. So I thought my destiny was in my own hands. So okay. that's why. I and what's your story with regard to education? I came up through public education in Chicago in the uh, mid-60s. Uh, it was not half bad. I, I got a decent high school education. I was a very young father. I dropped out of college, went back to a community college for a couple of years, got discovered by a math teacher there and recommended for a scholarship at Northwestern, which is what got me to Evanston, where I finished the last two years of my college education. I did very well and had um, options, and I ended up at MIT. But my inspiration came from my father, um, who was a self-made man, very hardworking, uh, finished college and law school at night, was a certified public accountant, uh, ended up with a distinguished career as a manager in the Internal Revenue Service. And even though he and my mom broke up pretty early in my own life, he was a constant presence in my life and a constant source of encouragement and inspiration um, and cajoling. Uh, he wouldn't let me fail. Wow. And Ian, what's your story? I mean, with regard to education, you were squared away enough by the age of, what, 18 to head off to Cornell. How did that happen? Well, like with most of us, our parents played a huge role. My parents were married for 48 years before my father uh, passed away. And they were from Jamaica, West Indies. So they, they came to the United States in the mid-1960s during a time of incredible racial turmoil. So they, had no, uh, they were under no uh, false illusion of the challenges that would face. And I remember my father always used to say, in Jamaica, I, I was a man. I was a man. It wasn't until I came to the United States that I realized that I was a black man. So it was very profound. But even with that, he said, this is still a place where through strong family, strong faith, strong education, our lives can be better. And so I was in New York City public schools, uh, K through 12. I went to Brooklyn Tech High School. And, uh, you know, growing up, you and, you know, another thing, my parents also, they frankly didn't like the way that they saw, they saw other young black men being raised and, and the, the kinds of ideas that they felt they were being exposed to. So I had a, a very sheltered um, education, K through 12. So, of course, individual experiences are just that, individual experiences, but... We've got, in two cases out of three, we've got parents who are playing a crucial role. And in the third case, it's just personal heroism. I don't know any other way to describe this man's life. So how is this, I still, how do you, how do we graft you guys? What, what can, how do we take a, a, a DNA sample and, and, and spread this? How is, 
Okay, we could go on for a while. I think I'm going to end it here and just wrap things up. Uh, I just like the messages that these three uh, elderly black gentlemen are sending to our youth. A uh, couple of things. Uh, Dr. Lowry has his podcast. I suggest uh, he got an interesting podcast on the whole George Floyd uh, situation. I think there's a documentary on that. I forgot the name of it, but he discussed that. Uh, the bottom line is that there are facts and things about that whole situation that they're not, uh, shall I say, advertising. And I uh, encourage everyone to check it out. And I don't say these things necessarily to change people's minds. I say what I say just to give people additional input and trust that as we get more and more facts and we get able to put things in context, it may change our minds and opinions about things. So just to wrap up some of the themes here, and we might continue this next uh, pop, next week on our podcast, I am going to bring you, and they keep referring to uh, Brother Thomas Sowell, and it, it, it's just a crime that people have almost conspired to make sure we don't hear from this man. And that's the problem I have with the media. I mean, the press and the media is really a big problem in this country because they have taken sides. They've become part of the propaganda machine unabashedly and unshamefully. And I basically just listen to most of the news to see what misinformation they're spreading to the rest of the population. There is another uh, 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 gentleman out there. I think his name is Michael Schellenberger. And he talks about how our intelligence community has taken the misinformation methods and campaigns that they used to use in foreign countries and they brought it to the American shore and they're being very effective at it. So let's just wrap up. Uh, and we've had, this has been a theme, this whole focus on race, you need to get out of it, I think. We would never get to the bottom of these issues and solve them until we start considering there's more involved in these things than just race. In fact, once again, we started off the program, uh, Brother Palmer, saying it's not about race. And so as long as we hung up on that and understand that there are people out there who's not our friends, who have vest, a vested interest in keeping Black folks focused on race and racism. And so I'm going to end it there. I'll bring back some of these remarks for some of these gentlemen uh, I keep saying that. Uh, the main thing, I guess, is I'm promising it here, is the focus on faith, family, and education. I got a friend of mine who called me, and well, he texted me and called me, and was talking about this latest news story of the week. Uh, this Russian uh, guy, let me get his name right, Alexia Navalny. Probably even who died in jail over there. I'm like, man, why are we even talking about this? Last week, 99% of America, including me and you, had never heard of this guy. And now all of a sudden, it's front page news. And that's the kind of public opinion manipulation that, that our news media and press have sank 
into nowadays. It, it, it's just pathetic. But I'll end it there. Uh, just remember, people can convince you, us, I should say, of anything if we don't know any better. So the challenge is to go out there and know better, uh, understand the priorities for your community. Don't let other people sidetrack us with their priorities. And let's keep working. Let's keep talking. Let's keep our motivations pure. And let's try to go out here and serve our community and make things better now and for future generation, especially with focus on our Black youth. Uh, this is Lacey Johnson signing off for the Lacey Johnson podcast. And remember to go out and comment, uh, click the notification bell, subscribe, go to the online store, and let us hear from and support the uh, podcast. Uh, see you again next week. We're going to take up here. I think it's our finally final uh, Black History Month uh, podcast. And remember what Morgan Freeman said about Black History Month. And remember, I share his opinion on that. And so I said I'll be participating in Black History Month, not necessarily celebrating. So see you next week, and let's continue participating. Thanks, and we really appreciate you.